This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Courtney, back once again for another episode with an outstanding guest. Yes, very exciting. Um, It's nice to be in person for this one. Um, I think that uh, she is a very, very busy busy person uh, mm-hmm. so it's very exciting to have have this guest on the podcast today. yeah and we are of course talking about the deputy vice chancellor of research at uwa um, professor anna novak so i think a lot of people will probably at least know of her um may have had a conversation with her um and kind of know a little bit about her pathway so uh i think i was first introduced to to her during her asbestos kind of career. I did learn a little bit about that and, and the work that she did there, mm-hmm. um, but a very well-known person. Yeah. Very exciting to have on the podcast today. Yes, and as Anna will um, talk us through, you know, has quite a, a varied career that's mm-hmm. had a really interesting pathway from, as you'll hear, music all the way through to uh, medicine and, and research. So, yeah, I feel like... We'll, she could, Anna can probably let us know that Absolutely. in her own words better than we can. So we'll let you have a listen. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Anna Novak to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, I understand you've got a bit of a tickly throat today, so we'll we'll do our best. Uh, yes, yeah, so my apologies in advance if I <laughs> have to take a break to cough. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, so usually what we do is we get people just to give us a bit of background about themselves, kind of their education, you know, what, what they're doing now, a little bit about their past work, that sort of thing. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a rundown? Sure. Uh, Well, I may not be Perth-born, but I'm definitely Mm Perth-bred. And uh, I think um, it it actually is important to mention that as part of my education, I was a a music scholarship student. I was a a Perth mod uh, kid. And why that's important is because there is an incredible discipline that music brings to your life and a work ethic. So uh, when you go through five years of high school, having to get up and practice at six o'clock every morning <laughs> and go to orchestra and uh, and choir and do a whole lot of really disciplined extracurricular activities that require a particular sort of focus, I do think that actually colours your life ongoing. Mm. Uh, and what it means is that I'm not very good at doing nothing. And I think that's been reflected in my (laughs) career. So I I then came to UWA and studied medicine. This was in the era of undergraduate medicine degrees. So uh, we came in with the same cohort, we left with the same cohort, uh, and it took six years. I actually think that from a personal perspective, the way we 
bring people into medical degrees now is much better. Mm -hmm. We allow them to have uh, a few years uh, exploring some other background and we're probably producing a broader variety of medical practitioners Mm -hmm. uh, out of our universities now. We also allow them to do broadening units, of course. So we've got medical practitioners who are coming through with uh, a a unit in gender studies or uh, architecture and everything else that you can Mm. think of. So uh, that was a very traditional, very narrow pathway uh, that led through to what I expected to be a lifetime of clinical practice. Um, When I embarked on university, I thought, I will be a doctor, and that's what I'll do Mm -hmm. until I retire. Okay. Can I just ask, what um, instruments or instruments did you play? Uh I was going to (laughs) ask. So I played the violin. Hey, me too. (laughs) Very good. And I didn't have as much talent as some of the other people that uh, were playing the violin in my cohort. Uh, So that was... (laughs) (laughs) So I would say it wasn't a passion. At the back end of the orchestra then? Yes. Me too, me too. (laughs) I did love singing. uh, But actually for the last eight years or so, I've been an adult learner on the flute. Oh, So I still have weekly flute lessons. Fantastic. And uh, the, the goal there is to keep my brain uh, active and healthy by learning new things as I get older. Yeah. Uh, but it's been lovely to go back to music. Yeah, it's mm. great. That was my one of my first instruments was the flute when I was in primary school mm-hmm. and in the concert band and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. I, I can't do the, the mouth movement to actually make the air go through the flute. So okay. I'm one of those that kind of just makes yeah. sounds like... Pfft. Yeah, you get used. Yeah, it's a yeah, process, you get used but you get used to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a lovely portable instrument True. as well. True, very small. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and actually in a yes. lot of big, big songs that you don't realize. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. That's a great little snapshot and. Um, music into medicine. Yep. Yeah. 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 So did you study here at UWA for your I medicine? I did. Yes. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what years? Was that, if you don't mind, <laughs> that's, that's contentious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't remember. I think it was 1985 through to 1990. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, that okay. sounds about right. Yeah, Because yeah. nice. I, I enrolled in a UWA in 97, I think, the first time I went to uni. And it was still the same then. People were straight out of high school into yeah. medicine in well, six yeah, years. Yeah, my brother um, did the six years as well, and that was uh, late 2000s. So it's only okay. a recent change. Yeah. Yes. The, yeah. I feel like degrees like medicine and law where you actually need some interpersonal skills and you need some empathy and that sort of stuff, they've started going to that model of getting you to do an undergrad mm. or have a bit of Are life you experience. you 18-year-olds don't have any empathy? No, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty that do. Um, but there's, the, I know that there's some real brainiacs yeah. that come in at, straight out of Absolutely. school that maybe not suited to practising medicine at the age of 24 or whatever the mm. age they finish at. So. It's fair to say that most of us didn't have much life experience. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's a big thing. So, yeah. so talk us through that process of doing medicine, graduating, and then starting your practice. Yeah. So there's a fairly well-worn pathway 
after graduating, you do an intern year where you uh, explore different uh, specialties. You have to do a bit of surgery, a bit of medicine, a bit of emergency and a couple of electives and then start to differentiate just a little bit and none of this has particularly changed. Mm -hmm. So then you become a uh, resident medical officer and so you're a junior doctor doing you know, fairly clerical level work, keeping the show on the road, uh, but also honing your skills with patients. And that usually lasts for two or three years. And the you start to differentiate into what direction, what part of medicine you want to go into. Mm -hmm. So I started to differentiate into physician training, internal medicine, uh, and that means that I spent a bit of time in uh, jobs like neurology, hepatology, liver medicine, respiratory medicine, uh, cancer medicine, kidneys. Uh, so just going around experiencing the broad range of what there is to do mm -hmm. and then uh, deciding to study for the physician's exams. So they are an entry barrier and in general you don't have the opportunity to settle on a training program until you've passed those exams. And uh, they are the most difficult exams that mm -hmm. I've ever done and I think that many people in that situation ever do. Mm -hmm. They really are a, a barrier to entry. So there's a written exam and then a clinical uh, exam mm -hmm. uh, that is face-to-face -face with patients and, uh, and examiners. And after that, you apply for training programs and by that time, I had really fallen in love with cancer medicine and for me it was a combination of the interesting biology of cancer, the fact that nobody with cancer ever really wants to come and see you. It's, it's, it's the bolt of lightning from the blue for that person. Uh, it's not – well, with, with, of course, some exceptions like smoking, it's not a, a – a, clearly linked to lifestyle choices that people make mm -hmm. and people are extremely motivated to work with their medical team for the best possible outcome. So the experiences that I had with people when I started to be involved in cancer medicine were that people were frightened, they responded really well to someone who had empathy and wanted to help them. And it was a really collaborative relationship towards getting them better. Mm -hmm. So I just loved working with the people, uh, the patients and their families. Um, a diagnosis of cancer, more often than not, is something that will bring families together. It will heal family rifts. Mm -hmm. uh, it will make people start talking again when they haven't been talking to each other for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, all of that was very um, inspiring and I felt I was able to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And is, is there any particular type of cancer that you ended up specialising with or is it just a general mm. sort of practice? So the training is generalist and that's mm. uh, three years 
And during that time, I did do a, a research project. That research project was in mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is a cancer of the lining of the lung. It's caused by asbestos and it's extremely rare around the world, but in Western Australia, it's actually extremely common. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, let me walk back on that. It's not common, but we have the highest incidence in the world mm-hmm. of yep. mesothelioma here in Western Australia because of the Wittenome asbestos mine mm-hmm. and the manuf- well, the, the refining use of asbestos, the shipping of asbestos. So... Uh, Asbestos came through uh, ports in the north, like uh, Port Hedland. It came through uh, Fremantle Port. The sacks that were used to ship asbestos ended up going under the carpet underlays Mm -hmm. in farmhouses. Uh, A lot of people who worked in Wittenome were there for a very short period. It was pretty inhospitable. It was hot. The working conditions were appalling. It was dusty. And so there were a lot of migrants from the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. who came to Wittenome as their first port of call in Australia. And a lot of them only stayed for weeks or a short number of months, sometimes with their families, but that was enough to expose them to asbestos. So we had this large cohort of people around Western Australia who'd been exposed to asbestos, often mm. quite transiently, uh, but they ended up developing mesothelioma. So how does that how does that work? Because like we think of cancers in general as quite a long-term thing, so they, it takes a long time for them to grow and then actually impact people. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of exposures, we think of smoking, but again, that's like a long-term exposure to smoking. Yeah. So how does asbestos, how did we find the link to cancer and how, how does that actually mm. cause cancer? So the link was made through epidemiology, uh, so observational work of asbestos exposure and uh, and the link between development of cancer on a population-wide basis. Mm-hmm. Um, the asbestos fibres penetrate their lungs, so you breathe them in, they go down through the, the trachea and the bronchi, they end up working their way through the lung tissue and lodge in the pleura, which is the space between the chest wall and the um, lining of the lung. It's the, it's the lining on the outside and inside uh, of the chest wall and lung. And they lodge there and over many years cause, they're carcinogenic, they cause uh, inflammation and uh, genetic changes in cells that over many years eventually uh, accumulate a sufficient number of mutations mm-hmm. to uh, cause cancer in some people. Mm-hmm. So the latency period between developing mesothelio- between asbestos exposure and developing mesothelioma is between 20 and 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're still suffering the after effects of that. Uh, But actually back to where I started there, Mm. it was how did I get into this area? Uh, It was clear that this was an area in which Western Australia had expertise. There were research groups working uh, in mesothelioma. And after completing my oncology training, I decided to do a PhD to be completely frank, that was part of 
wanting to make myself competitive and get a good job. A good job at that point in my mind was a job in a teaching hospital, Mm -hmm. uh, which brings different sort of academic and leadership opportunities to working in private practice. Mm -hmm. So the PhD was in a mesothelioma, in the mesothelioma Mm -hmm. field, and uh, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to link your clinical practice to what you do in research Mm. and the two really feed off each other. Okay. And so what what were the main findings of your PhD work? (laughs) So my PhD was predominantly in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. I was coming in with an oncologist's perspective of that time, which was that we used chemotherapy to treat cancer, including at that time mesothelioma. But there was emerging interest in immunotherapy and I was fortunate enough to join a research group that were working on immunotherapy. So we married these two concepts of chemotherapy and immunotherapy We started with the premise that chemotherapy, because it reduces your white blood cells, causes uh, immune compromise, the premise was that um, immunotherapy and chemotherapy uh, together would be less effective, that immunotherapy would, sorry, chemotherapy would reduce the ability of the immune system to respond to immunotherapy. So we're wanting to look at the deficits that chemotherapy created and then understand how we might reverse those deficits. Mm -hmm. The findings were completely counterintuitive. So it was one of the first observations that chemotherapy actually set the scene for immunotherapy and that the two could be synergistic. So that really underpinned the remainder of my career in Mm. tumour immunology, mesothelioma research, uh, which saw the concept of chemoimmunotherapy go from uh, fringe Mm -hmm. to mainstream and into clinical practice. So chemoimmunotherapy is used in many diseases currently. Uh, And that's the first line sort of option, yeah. is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. It's quite common now because, like, yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard of the combo of both of them and, yeah. and like, there's just putting it to, to kind of social aspects. There's a lot of um, uh, famous YouTubers at the moment that somehow all have cancer and they've all talked about that combination as well. So, like, it's very, yeah. very common. So just talk us through immunotherapy because that's a, a more recent development, right? Yes. Chemotherapy is an older, an older treatment. How does immunotherapy work? So most of the immunotherapies that are in ca- uh, clinical use in cancer today work by taking the brakes off the immune system. So the immune system usually or often will see a cancer, will know there's something there. Uh, The cancer will have abnormal proteins that trigger an immune response, but they will also have the ability to circumvent that immune response through upregulating what we call um, checkpoint molecules. So those checkpoint molecules say to the immune system, hang on a minute, I'm actually part of you, don't come for me. Now, many of the immunotherapies will actually block those checkpoint molecules, so they'll uh, remove the breaks that the cancer would otherwise put on the immune system. 
the challenge of immunotherapy is that uh, it is not necessarily a completely benign and trouble-free treatment. Mm -hmm. It's much more unpredictable in its side effects than chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, you can pretty much predict over the course of a cycle of treatment between three weeks what will, what a patient will experience. Mm-hmm. Immunotherapy, the side effects can involve uh, the immune system focusing on any other part of the body mm-hmm. and that can be short term or it can be long term and stopping the immunotherapy may not actually remove that focus okay. uh, of the immune system on another part of the body. So it can be anything, can be yeah. endocrine systems, can be the gut. So one of the most common debilitating side effects is uh, diarrhea and mm-hmm. inflammation of the gut. Okay. Uh, so it's got its own set of challenges, yeah. but the combination with chemotherapy and indeed immunotherapy on its own uh, has been a huge step forward. Yeah. So I, I would have thought if you like had the immunotherapy and then taken it away that then the effects would have gone away. So why does it keep on having consequences for the patient? Uh, So once the immune system is educated to see a part of the body, sometimes it doesn't stop its uh, (laughs) attack. So it becomes an autoimmune disease. Right. Uh, But the other aspect is that these are monoclonal antibodies that have really long Mm half-lives. So they will also persist in the body for many months, uh, even at at low levels. Whereas chemotherapy, most chemotherapies have a really short Mm half-life of a matter of hours, Mm. and immunotherapies have a half-life that's a matter of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So just going back to mesothelioma, which is where this sort of conversation yeah. started, uh, my understanding, and this might be incorrect, is that there's not a great survival rate for people who get mesothelioma. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. Is there, yes. There's no actual effective treatment to completely cure the disease? Or? No. Okay. And we also need to remember that most curable cancers are cured because you have the combination of surgery, mm-hmm. which removes the bulk of the tumour, and then you may need uh, additional what we call adjuvant therapies that might be chemotherapy or immunotherapy that mop up the last cell. Mm-hmm. The problem with mesothelioma is that it is its, its location, uh, circumferential around the chest cavity, and then it uh, overlays the diaphragm, it can go along the lining of the heart, it can invade the ribs. So surgi- surgery it's not like removing a marble or a golf ball from breast or prostate or lung. Mm-hmm. Uh, surgery does happen. Mm-hmm. It is a huge operation, uh, very morbid. It's got a uh, extra pleural pneumonectomies have a uh, mortality rate of around 5% right, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, just from the operation. Mm-hmm. And then the treatments that come in afterwards, uh, radiotherapy is difficult in, immun- in in mesothelioma. If you're trying to give radiotherapy to a breast, then you can really confine your treatment to the area that is uh, the, the area that's adjacent to where the cancer's been removed. Mm-hmm. But because mesothelioma involves the whole chest cavity, if you're giving radiation, you're also targeting the lung, the heart, they're all in the way. So it limits the doses that you can go with radiation. Yeah. 
techniques are improving a lot, but mm. it's still a limiting factor. And then, of course, on top of that, the systemic treatments, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, aren't that effective. Mm -hmm. uh, so all in all, the combination of uh, surgery that can't be as comprehensive, radiotherapy that probably can't go to as high doses, yep. and treat systemic treatments that aren't as effective mean that cure is remotely unlikely. Yeah, okay. I, I did have a friend whose dad, who I knew quite well, um, got mesothelioma and passed away sort of within about two or three years. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. He lived the last couple of years of his life draining a lot of fluid off his yeah. chest cavity. Um, but, yeah, just a slow kind of, yeah, unpleasant sort of way to go, I think. Yeah. 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 Is there any way to, like, if you know that you've had exposure to asbestos, is there any way to kind of elongate the time in which you don't get the cancer? So is there a preventative method in between in that 20 to 50 years? That is a great question, and there's been quite a lot of research uh, around that. The late Bill Musk was a UWA uh, and Sir Charles Gardner um, doctor and researcher. And he set up a vitamin A uh, prevention program mm. in an era in which vitamin A was uh, thought to be uh, chemopreventive. There it didn't end up being evidence that it was, mm -hmm. uh, but that was quite a long-term program. In the laboratory that I, I worked with, we had a mouse model of asbestos. Uh, this mouse had a genetic change that meant that once we put asbestos into the peritoneum of the mouse, into the abdominal cavity, uh, it would develop mesothelioma more quickly than a mouse mm. that didn't have that one genetic change. Mm -hmm. So this was a really useful model to see if we could understand uh, what chemo prevention could do. So in that mouse, we tested so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> we tested uh, vitamins, we tested uh, cholesterol-lowering mm -hmm. medications, we tested a whole range of different um, strategies that had been put forward as potentially chemoprotective and none of them came through as effective. Mm -hmm. But the other thing we did more recently was there's actually evidence that exercise can prevent cancer or can, can delay the onset of cancers. People who exercise regularly mm -hmm. uh, develop fewer cancers. So in collaboration with a group from uh, Edith Cowan University, the uh, group of exercise physiologists, we took those mice, the Mextag mice that develop mesothelioma with asbestos, and we put them in conditions where they could exercise or not. So the mice had running wheels mm -hmm. and uh, they absolutely ran. <laughs> uh, and we didn't find any evidence that mice with the opportunity to vigorously exercise over the long term could delay the onset of mm. mesothelioma either. Mm. So the short answer to your question is we tried a whole bunch of things in the laboratory <laughs> yeah. and none of them worked. Mm -hmm. In terms of understanding what might work in people, we're looking at a very small proportion of people who actually develop the mesothelioma mm. from all of those who are exposed. So mm. clinical trials would be really difficult mm. and long-term mm, to run. Course. So our best 
hope is to come up with something in the laboratory in shorter term mouse experiments and just to add that those experiments take about a year Mm -hmm. so they're not Mm -hmm. short term because the mouse has to develop mesothelioma as well Uh, and so our best hope is to find something in the laboratory that might Mm. work in mice and then uh, have a more targeted examination in humans hopefully looking at some of the um, earlier indicators of mm. propensity to develop mesothelioma. Yeah, okay. Mm. I guess that's where epigenetics and these sorts of things yeah. may come in handy with our big databases now. So at any given time, it's a small proportion of the population, but obviously over time there's obviously a number of cases that give us the data that we can go mm. back and have a look at, um, which is interesting and exciting. So there yeah. have been uh, genetic epidemiology genetic epidemiology <laughs> studies here in Western Australia mm-hmm. as well yeah. uh, and uh, genome-wide association studies. They have found some candidate genes that may predispose people uh, in small measure to mesothelioma, but uh, there's nothing that's been uh, a standout. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this work is ongoing. Yeah, <laughs> and look, nothing that's been able to be cross-validated in other cohorts around the world. So right. each cohort has probably suffered from being underpowered because mm-hmm. of the relative rareness of the disease, but there hasn't been a lot of... Uh, there haven't been a lot of similarities found between the uh, genes identified as uh, potential. Oh, I'm, I'm losing my words now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> potential pre- for predisposition predict, yeah, to mesothelioma. May predict or be associated yeah. Yeah, so so that's a really interesting kind of snapshot of one aspect of your work. Um, I understand that even though you were born, not born here, but bred here and trained here and whatever, that you have worked overseas and um, over east. Do you, do you want to talk us through that stage of your career? Yeah, so after my uh, period in doing my PhD, uh, I really felt I needed to add something else to my understanding career outside of continuing with um, mouse work and tumor immunology in that way. So I was fortunate to get a fellowship to go to the NHMRC Clinical Trials Centre in Sydney, which at that time, uh, so that must be 2002 and Mm -hmm. 3, was certainly and probably still is uh, Australia's premier uh, academic clinical trials organisation. So I worked in clinical trials and quality of life there in cancer and I learnt a huge amount about clinical trials, management, governance, design uh, of clinical trials, analysis, uh, biostatistics and I think if I had stayed in one aspect of research, my career would have looked very different. So I'm actually really grateful to have had an opportunity to add something completely different but complementary mm-hmm. to my career through that time in Sydney at the NHMRC Clinical mm-hmm. Trial Centre. Mm-hmm. So that was my postdoc. Okay. Uh, and the, the quality of life component of that, what exactly were you looking at there? 
Yeah. So that was reasonably early in the days of quality of life questionnaires as a validated and accepted outcome uh, for... to to help us evaluate the impact of um, interventions in cancer. Mm -hmm. So I worked on validating psychometric properties of uh, quality of life tools Mm -hmm. and also applying the first quality of life, the first time that quality of life tool had been uh, psychometrically validated in mesothelioma. Uh, Also worked in some other areas in that as well. Mm -hmm. And... That was certainly a really valuable experience and led to uh, ongoing involvement on a smaller scale and more peripheral in my career, but ongoing involvement with um, quality of life research. Yeah. So was it stuff like the SF36 and these sorts of measures or were there other, other things that we made? So the, the, as a cancer measure, uh, I was validating the um, EORTC, QRQC30 and LC13 mm-hmm. in mesothelioma. So we have quite a lot of cancer-specific measures okay. uh, that go beyond the SF36 yeah. and, and the sorts of measures that you might use in general population. Mm-hmm. There's two main suites, the European EORTC and the FACT suite, uh, which is um, Functional Assessment of Cancer Therapy, and that's more US-based. Mm-hmm. But uh, over two decades, a lot of other measures, particularly around patient and care and needs, so moving away from just understanding the impact of the cancer and the side effects of the treatment to also understanding the broader impact of cancer on people's psychosocial well-being and Mm -hmm. that of the people around them, including Mm -hmm. people who uh, care for them. Yeah, okay. Mm, So do do those kind of questionnaires include, uh, like, how how would you measure improvement in quality of life for Mm. cancer patients, like, using those questionnaires? Yeah. So questions include... Uh, quite general questions Mm -hmm. uh, where people are just asked simply to rate their quality of life and their Mm -hmm. physical activity, but they also may include aspects that are quite specific to the side effects of that, uh, sorry, the symptoms of that cancer. Mm -hmm. So let's take lung cancer as as, as an example. You might measure on a scale of one to five or one to seven, uh, people's experience, self-reported experience of pain, Mm. uh, of uh, coughing, of coughing up blood, of weight loss, uh, the energy. And whilst this isn't particularly useful as an individual tool because there are so many different uh, variables around your experience of any of those symptoms on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. When you're looking at large clinical trials and you have several hundred people in the intervention arm and the control arm, it is very reassuring to see that a an increase in survival or an increase in the time to progression of the cancer is accompanied by uh, a decrease in symptoms or a change mm-hmm. in the symptom mm-hmm. profile for that group as a whole. Yeah. Uh, but quality of life is really most useful as a as a measurement tool when it's used in randomised clinical trials. Yeah. In my opinion. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I work in the, the justice health space so and, and homelessness and that sort of marginalised populations. Um, and we do use a, quite a bit of quality of life, you know, physical functioning, mental functioning, that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I imagine that the, the questions that you want to answer for cancer are quite specific, aren't they, around the sorts of things that treatment does to people and, you know, the experience of living with the cancer and for the people around them dealing with that sort of grief and, and that sort of thing as well. I guess it must be quite, quite a specific... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the questions around side effects will ask about hair loss and nausea mm. and vomiting, for example. Yeah. Uh, that actually highlights one of the issues around immunotherapy, very different set of side effects. So some of the tools that we use to measure the side effects of cancer therapy and have done for 20 years, if we're continuing to use those same tools to measure the side effects of immunotherapy. They're no longer relevant right. and you know one of the uh, one of my little bugbears is that we will often ask people about their side effects over the short term uh, so in the last week what have you experienced with this that or the other but uh, for immunotherapy those side effects can be longer term but lower grade mm-hmm. so we can debate whether having nausea and vomiting for 24 hours is better or worse than having and maybe even severe nausea and vomiting for 24 hours. Mm. But what is the impact of that on your life versus having diarrhoea four or five times a day for many months? Mm-hmm. Uh, diarrhoea four or five times a day or even two or three times a day might not rate so highly as a um, in the last week, how severe was this problem? But it might yeah. be more impactful over many mm. years, many months. So starting to bring in um, area under the curve mm-hmm. uh, mm. for our measurement of cancer side effects and quality of life, I think, is going to be really important. Yeah, okay. So that's the sensitivity, specificity, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Interesting. One for the stat- statisticians. To think about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... I, I think I may have read somewhere that you also spent a bit of time in the U- US. Is that right? Um, I, I had a, a reasonably long sabbatical in Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was working with a colleague um, at the University of Chicago uh, around imaging in mm-hmm. mesothelioma. Um, a wonderful, long-term, fruitful collaboration. And he has also been out to Australia for a prolonged sabbatical period as mm-hmm. well. The, the uh, imaging would look quite different to what you'd think of as a typical tumour, right? Because you do think of like that big golf ball, but as you said, it kind of spreads across the whole yes. chest cavity. So what, what does it look like on on an image or it's um, yeah it looks like a rind around an orange really yeah okay. uh, if you consider the inside the pith of the the the, the segments of the orange to be the lung mm-hmm. and then you've got that rind which can go from mandarin to orange to grapefruit mm-hmm. uh, and this is all inside the chest cavity so mm. conventionally we measure cancers by measuring the diameter it's pretty simple you mm-hmm. can measure the diameter of a, a, a breast mass and that you know, two or three centimetres of a lung mass, again, measured in centimetres. In mesothelioma, you're trying to measure something which is a much more complex uh, shape. Mm. And really volumetric measurement would be the gold standard, but it's only been in recent years that uh, CT imaging has had 
the uh, underpinning software to um, have reasonably good quality uh, volumetric manage, uh, measurement of mm. mesothelioma. But that volumetric measurement, the mesothelioma is also adjacent to other soft tissues. Mm -hmm. So your automated measurements might catch uh, pericardium or heart or rib or fat, maybe mm -hmm. not so much fat uh, or, or rib, but sorry, I meant uh, chest wall muscle mm -hmm. or diaphragm. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole lot of things that have uh, maybe similar imaging properties uh, and make the distinction difficult. So mm -hmm. my work in Chicago was around um, improving volumetric management, so volumetric measurement of mesothelioma and relating changes in volumetric measurement to the sorts of outcomes that we look at for, for clinical trials, mm -hmm. such as survival, progression-free survival, mm -hmm. quality of life. So we're really looking for surrogate early endpoints of response to treatment mm -hmm. that will then convert to uh, improvements in overall survival. Yeah, and I still remain <laughs> involved in mesothelioma measurement research. I have a 5 a.m. call tomorrow morning, <laughs> which is a Saturday, yeah. and I have 5 a.m. calls on oh, probably, depending on where we are up to in the project, between one in two and one in four Saturdays. Wow. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a badge of dedication. Yeah. That's what yeah. you get for working with like overseas people though. I know, <laughs> I know. And look, when they finish summertime, it'll go back to 6am and I can't yeah. wait for that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, safe to say I haven't got a 5am call tomorrow. Yeah, Probably. no, neither. Yeah, I feel blessed. <laughs> yeah, so we might um, just pivot a little bit now because we've sort of talked about the the medicine side of your career, but there's also another fairly prominent side, which is the academic side. Mm -hmm. um, and you're a very senior academic at the university, deputy vice chancellor of research. Yes. Yep. So, what's the what's the, been the pathway from practicing medicine, doing a PhD, and then ending up in the the upper echelons of UWA? <laughs> uh, it's been an unexpected pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, so. I did have, I, I guess I've always been someone who's put my head above the parapet and engaged in a lot of service opportunities. I always found that those service opportunities benefited my career, my networks, and were really meaningful to me to be able to um, contribute to something that was beyond the individual patient-doctor interaction or publishing um, papers. So I found myself moving into more leadership roles. Uh, and a lot of those happened when I had quite small children, so I was you know, perhaps reluctant to uh, take on more at the time, but I had my arm twisted and I did. <laughs> and so... These roles went from, I guess, you start with chairing committees and, and being involved in advisory boards and and steering groups to being involved in uh, 
professional bodies Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually to leading some of those uh, Mm -hmm. if you're open to those opportunities and presumably if people think that you have some aptitude for them along the way. So somewhat concurrently, I ended up being the director of the National Centre for Asbestos-Related Diseases uh, and the chair of the Cooperative Group for Mm Neuro-Oncology. Very different leadership roles, one uh, for a medium-sized 35-person research group, so very much within the academic system, and another with a uh, 800-membership cooperative clinical trials group dispersed across Australia. So I learnt a lot from those roles, but I was also open to learning how I might improve my skills. So I became a little bit of a uh, leadership learning junkie Mm -hmm. in my effort to be better at what I was doing and fulfil those roles as well as I could. So I went through a health department leadership program. I went through Oxford Women's Leadership Development Program uh, and uh, did the Australian Institute for Company Directors course. So I really set about some formal learning Mm -hmm. in this area. And then I ended up enrolling in a Masters of Leadership during COVID, which was uh, (laughs) a folly. I thought, well, I'm not travelling, so I've got to do something. I think this comes back to music and not being able to sit around and do nothing with my life. So I traded uh, travel for further learning. Around that time, I started to look for other uh, opportunities within academia or medical research institute leadership and I uh, was offered a role which was a very, I I applied for and was offered a role which was not in Western Australia and when I tried to resign, (laughs) uh, and this was during COVID, uh, I was then uh, offered an alternative at UWA, which Mm -hmm. was the um, Deputy Executive Dean role Mm -hmm. in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. So I was, although I had been very committed to potentially progressing my career elsewhere, uh, it just didn't make sense to leave Western Australia when our borders had just shut. So this was right at the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed that role. Uh, Faculties were disbanded at UWA. And uh, I moved into the role of Pro Vice-Chancellor Health and Medical Research. I really enjoyed that role as well. (laughs) And uh, that was a, it had a university-wide mandate. So 22 of 23 schools at that time were doing health research. Uh, the only one that wasn't was Earth Sciences, and they are actually now involved in health research as <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so all of our schools at UWA are involved in health research in some form or another, often mm-hmm. only through a couple of people that may be collaborating, but it's, mm-hmm. it's throughout the whole university. Mm-hmm. So that university-wide um, involvement was really uh, interesting, really exciting, a fantastic opportunity. And I worked with the then DVC Research, Tim mm-hmm. Colmer, as part of the research executive. 
he uh, had the opportunity to step into an acting position uh, as Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor and I was offered the opportunity to act as Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research. It was a pretty daunting opportunity uh, because it was the first time I'd really stepped out of health and medicine to an opportunity that involved a greater degree of accountability within the university, of financial and budget responsibility, uh, of people management responsibility, and of course, bringing in the broadest range of the things that we do, including astronomy, Mm -hmm. physics, (laughs) business, humanities. uh, And so I had a lot to learn quite quickly. That was initially six months that became 12 months due to the recruitment process. Uh, But that did that role and and the senior deputy vice chancellor role both went to external recruitment Mm -hmm. and both Tim and I were fortunate to be the um, successful candidates for those roles. (laughs) So it it was, as you can hear, it was not about my move into leadership in health and medicine was planned. Mm -hmm. Uh, My move into further academic leadership within the university was unplanned (laughs) and serendipitous. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so just a comment, we actually had Tim Comer on a previous episode. Oh, great. It so was a great chat. Mm. Uh, works with food, like wheat, agriculture. And agriculture, yes. yeah. It's an interesting guy. We also had Professor John Watson on. Um, yes. who you would have been working with when the old structure was in place. That's right. So John was um, my boss uh, mm-hmm. as the executive dean, mm-hmm. yeah. health and medical sciences. Yeah, okay. I enjoyed working with John. Yeah, okay. So we're trailblazing as a podcast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what, what's been the sort of the biggest difference you've noticed from stepping outside of purely like a health role into something that's really a general university research uh, mm. leadership role? Uh, I, I think the biggest learning curve has actually been in uh, the invisible university processes that go on uh, to run an organisation of this size and complexity uh, and with the level of governance that is required in a highly regulated industry. Higher education is is highly externally regulated and uh, so that, that for me has really been the biggest change. It's been less of a challenge learning perhaps a little about agriculture and astronomy and mm-hmm. music uh, because we really rely on the expertise of the amazing researchers that we have in those fields. So I can call on those people to 
let me know, help me understand uh, the landscape and context of their field. Uh, if I'm lucky, I develop a little bit more of an understanding of the work that they're doing uh, and uh, also the opportunity to join them when they may have uh, forums or government visits, uh, for example. So it's been less around understanding much about the content and more about developing an understanding of the context and the way the university works. Mm. So in your current role, because I, I think a lot of people would probably see a number of um, those leadership roles as quite abstract things without like a daily to-do list and that kind of thing. So like a doctor, <laughs> you know, you've got to, you kind of have an idea of what a doctor does, but for a leadership role, particularly in like overall research, I don't think a lot of people would actually quite understand what that entails. So what kind of work would you do on a, a daily basis or a weekly basis or, yeah. Mm. Uh, lots of meetings. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. And <laughs> They fall into, I guess, some different categories. There's, of course, uh, internal university meetings that might be academic board, university research committee, uh, committees around data promotions. Uh, there's we have we have a lot of committees. <laughs> then there's uh, external. Uh, Again, committee work. So uh, I'm on a number of boards where UWA is uh, closely involved with those organisations. So that might be NCRIS, the um, uh, research infrastructure capabilities, so International Marine Observing Systems, uh, Population Health Research Network. So those those boards, uh, RAIN Study, ICRA. Mm -hmm. Then, so that's that's the a bulk of the formal meetings. Then I'll often meet with uh, researchers about specific issues that might range from requests for uh, support and funding. They're very common <laughs> uh, through to perhaps research integrity issues or uh, challenges that they are facing that might be uh, of an organisational or even sometimes of a personal nature. Um, and also external engagement. So that will be with uh, government, with prospective donors, uh, with organisations that um, may have some crossover uh, with uh, Westerners, with, with UWA. You know, as an example, I think yesterday I had University Research Committee, Foreign Interference Committee, those were my internal committees. Mm -hmm. I had an external uh, meeting with the Management Committee of a donor for an endowed chair uh, and uh, we met with the founder of the Australian Innovation Management Institute mm -hmm. and then I had internal meetings <laughs> with my with people in my team as well. Yeah. But aside from that, there's a lot of emails. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so so day to day uh, i would i would love to have more thinking time and more uh, strategic thinking uh, opportunities uh, there are there are a lot of uh, requirements day to day uh, of the mm -hmm. role that um, fill in fill in that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so obviously there's just one of you and I'm sure that there's lots of demands on your time personally because people know you and they want you to be present, etc. And that you probably get invited to things all the time. 
within the university structure, who sits beneath you that could then mm-hmm. maybe you could delegate some of these tasks yeah. to? So we have the Provost Chancellor Research, Andrew Page, Provost Chancellor Health and Medical Research, uh, Romola Bucks. Uh, we've also got our Dean of the Graduate Research School, Director of Office of Innovation and Commercial Development, Research uh, Institute Directors. So I have a, a number of uh, people, both in academic and professional leadership positions that I work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to clone some of them as well <laughs> yeah. because... They experience similar challenges to me. Some mm-hmm. of them are fractional uh, in their appointments and, uh, of course, they are also managing internal expectations, the external relationship building and forward-looking uh, work that they need to do as well mm-hmm. and the operational aspects of the roles. Mm. Yeah. So for people who are involved in research like you have been, you know, through your career yes. and then they're sort of stepping up to with aspirations of maybe some of these more leadership roles. What sort of impact has it had on your ability to do research taking on these more senior roles? Do you still yeah. keep a hand in? I know you've said you've got some calls coming up yeah. tomorrow, for example. Mm-hmm. I am tailing off my research. I do still have uh, involvement in some projects that are funded and ongoing and I do still keep links with the postdoc team at the National Centre for Asbestos Related Diseases, the people who are actively doing some of that work. I think my life will be simplified if I'm no longer doing research, but I'm extremely committed to seeing out what I said I would do. Mm-hmm. Really fortunate that uh, the people that I worked with are ready to take on more leadership roles mm-hmm. and to continue to drive some of that work. So it will be okay yeah. when I step away from it. Uh, I have... A couple of my PhD, oh, I've had a number of PhD students complete um, this last two years. Mm-hmm. And although I have taken on one new one, it's not <laughs> as principal and coordinating supervisor. So uh, and my last PhD student from my heavier research career should actually be submitting next month. Okay, that's exciting. And that will leave me with one and I don't think I'll take on any more. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so your main... Your- Pretty much your main focus going forward will be these these university leadership. It roles. has to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. There's mm-hmm. just yeah, it wouldn't be sustainable to try to do both. I'm in awe of uh, Brian Schmidt, who is the vice chancellor of ANU. Yeah. Uh, he continued to work as a as a, a an astronomer <laughs> during his tenure as vice chancellor. I'm not sure what that looked like, whether it was half a day a week that he quarantined, but uh, that yeah. that makes him. An extraordinary man in my book. I would argue that he has the whole of nighttime to do that work and then daytime <laughs> for leadership stuff. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. um, for for uh, researchers that are kind of wanting to go into these more leadership roles, do you have any um, uh, tips for those researchers? Is there anything that like really helped you get into those leadership roles? So I think putting your hand up to be a part of university committees mm-hmm. uh, is really helpful. So there was a time a number of years back where I was a part of the university research committee in a um, junior role. I think I was the deputy associate dean research for faculty, <laughs> which uh, 
had fairly limited uh, duties, I guess. It was more backup, but it did allow me to sit on the University Research Committee Mm -hmm. and observe uh, how that functioned and observe fabulous people in action, uh, like our previous DVCR, Robin Owens. I would say that leadership roles in your discipline are often a great training ground as well for leadership roles in the university. And so I would encourage people to take on service and leadership roles in their discipline if they're interested in university leadership roles, Mm -hmm. to be part of the university committee life, to attend academic board, to speak up, uh, to put your head above the parapet. Uh, Because if you can't, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, Mm. then uh, a university leadership role is probably not the right thing for you. Mm. So there's obviously a lot of strategy involved in what you do, I think, in terms of where the university is and where it's wanting to head and that sort of stuff. And one issue that comes up a lot in public discourses around women and involvement in STEM subjects as so science, technology, engineering and medicine. Have you, what have you seen throughout your career um, change in, in that space and where do you see things going from here? So medicine is more than 50% female now and uh, it since my involvement in medicine, mm. uh, it, it there hasn't really been a significant gender imbalance until you get to... Um, academic leadership roles and to specialist training. I think that is changing very substantially. So specialist training uh, now has a a high proportion of women as well. There are still a number of areas with very difficult um, gender imbalances, particularly at uh, higher levels in the university. Actually, I will say that there are not many level E women in medicine in the university either. Mm. But when we look at areas like uh, computer science, engineering, uh, physics and maths, uh, those very traditionally male-dominated areas, uh, there is a very substantial um, imbalance The university is working to redress that through our Athena SWAN processes. We're currently going through some signets for Athena SWAN Silver. And one of those is the, uh, is, that's being used as an example, is the uh, Women in Engineering program. So our School of Engineering has recently quarantined a number of uh, level B and C, I think, uh, academic roles for women. So these roles were specifically targeted as women with the goal of creating a cohort that would also inspire the pipeline, would ensure that these women were not working in a vacuum, that they had uh, some colleagues who were at similar stages of their career. The engineering pipeline, I, I believe, and please don't quote me on this, but I think it's about 20 to 25% of their undergraduate students are women. I think it drops down a little bit at um, postgraduate, but it was much less than that in mm. the School of Engineering. Mm. So that has required really important leadership from the head of school. Mm-hmm. And he for she, we need men in those male-dominated areas to really drive 
the change uh, with concrete actions mm -hmm. that cannot but lead to the outcomes that we want. So once mm -hmm. you've got five positions in the School of Engineering for women, okay, that's that's an amazing start. Yeah, mm. okay. And hopefully that will inspire the next generations. They'll see people like them in those roles and so more girls will get involved and mm. whatnot in those subjects. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have had some really strong female uh, role models in engineering. Mm -hmm. It's just not as many of them. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I say that sitting in a school that I'm, I'm definitely in the minority as a male <laughs> academic because at Population Health, it's, it's yes. mostly women. driven by women, yep. and the leadership team are, you know, dominated by women, etc. Yeah. I do think it needs to work both ways. Yeah. And uh, we can't just look at gender equality as bringing women into male-dominated areas. We also need to hear male voices and perspectives and ideas in female-dominated areas. Mm. And an example of this is uh, our University Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee is very heavily uh, dominated by women. Mm -hmm. We would love to have more men yep. uh, come into that, uh, into those mm -hmm. uh, committees. Yeah, let me know where I can apply. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Well, I think we're probably coming towards the end of our, our conversation here. It's been really great to get your perspective and your unique kind of um, journey through your career uh, from music all the way through to medicine to, <laughs> to leading the university. Um, yeah, just a quick thought on, on what next and what, what the future holds. Well, I am probably not quite as young as I look thanks to a life of wearing sunscreen <laughs> and <laughs> being in music and studying and <laughs> all of that. So uh, I'm five years in this role mm -hmm. uh, and I... Uh, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to think what I might do next mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. There are, I guess, re there's a relatively small cohort of people who are in the university executive roles. So opportunities do come up uh, around Australia. The most recent uh, approach I had uh, was a brochure telling me all about uh, the opportunity to be vice chancellor of a university in Kazakhstan. Okay. So I did send a um, polite thank you, but I'm not interested in this role <laughs> at this point in my career. <laughs> yeah, that'd be quite a move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's 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 where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, people who are recruiting for the University of Kazakhstan um, <laughs> might have picked me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a whole other journey, I reckon. Yeah. So, would you still consider um, going overseas? Because originally you did, that's what your plan and yeah. I, I think uh, now that I have uh, adult children yeah. uh, yes um, I have many many more options mm -hmm. uh, and it's really important for me to also consider where my family and personal mm -hmm. life is at mm -hmm. and uh, it's important that they are also uh, able to pursue their dreams, mm -hmm. uh, that my husband uh, is able to have a fulfilling career and uh, that my uh, elderly 
other elderly family members mm-hmm. uh, are also adequately supported as yeah, well. So nice. I take all that into consideration when I'm thinking about my next move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, that's a great note to finish on. Thanks very much for making the time to have a chat with us. It's been wonderful. Mm. Thank you so much. And uh, look, thank you for your work on these podcasts. I will be inspired to go back and listen to some of them myself <laughs> now yeah. as well. I think you're going to be somewhere in the, the low 90s. Wow. Um, so we've, we've had a few come out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What an amazing effort. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks very much. our chat with Professor Anna Novak. She's just lovely. Um, uh, loved the fact that uh, we both played violin. Uh, very, very exciting. And the fact that she's learning the flute now, just, oh boy, <laughs> just, yeah. just, that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's something to be said for, for that, not necessarily just music, but learning a new skill. Or yeah, a, you know, having a hobby, yeah. particularly when you're in a high-impact job. Mm. It's, it's an... Inf- a way of enforce, forcing yourself to take some time out and yeah. not think about what oh, you normally think about. So good, yeah. so good. Yeah, people do yoga, people do Pilates. Yeah, know, why not That's learn an quite, instrument? Why not the flute? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'd yeah. choose the flute personally, but no. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, not, you, not my cup you, too. you need to watch Anchorman because he plays a bit oh, of jazz, jazz flute in that. So yeah, well, I inspired. think flute is also probably going to be a bit more popular now with Lizzo. Um, yeah, because she's she plays the flute. That's and, right, and has made that quite popular. So yeah, there'll be more more flutists, <laughs> flautists. I <laughs> think is the term, which I, which always kind of baffled me as a kid because that was what I learned from one of my early instruments when I was growing up. Yeah, <laughs> I was considered to be a flautist, a not, flautist. not a flautist, yeah. a flautist or a flautist, depending. I think on, it's I think it's flautist. Yeah, I think yeah, on, Australia flautist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> Yeah, no, anyway, it's a great conversation and clearly a very inspiring person. Absolutely, Anna. yeah, and she obviously knows her stuff as well. Just yeah, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'd be curious to know how much of all of the other research projects that she knows um, mm. in UWA and what kind of level of information. But obviously, like she is one of the experts in mesothelioma. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how she says that word so often. You'd get used L- to it, right? Lots, lots of practice. Oh, yeah. lots of practice. Um, yeah, but obviously she's the expert in that type of cancer and it was just fascinating to hear yeah. how that came about, particularly with the link with asbestos. Yeah, mm. and then the uh, the innovation in the types of therapy and the combination of therapies, yeah. in- immunotherapy with chemotherapy Definitely. and whatnot. And she also like touched on the fact that she's done a huge amount of research where there was no outcome. Mm. And I think that's really important to highlight is, yeah. you know, she tried all of these things to see if there was a preventative, um, uh, not treatment, but thing that could be implemented for these people to, yeah. to elongate the process. And there was literally nothing. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's really important to highlight. I'm not sure what that, if, the famous quote, is it by Thomas Edison, who says, I, you know, did a lot of research and none of it worked, but I found a hundred new ways not to do something. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's some sort of quote. Like you're that. talking yeah. to the wrong person about <laughs> names and quotes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think I've heard of it before. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't a failure. It just found a lot of new ways to not do something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we we could carry on for hours. Absolutely. Uh, but we shouldn't. Um, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> so, Courtney, if people enjoyed this episode uh, and wanted to give us some lovely feedback on it, 
How would they do that? So you can contact us at uh, meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Uh, you can tweet us at healthmeanswhat. You can contact us on Instagram, also at healthmeanswhat. Um, if you search Meaning of Health podcast, you'll find us on Facebook. Uh, use all of those different kinds of methods to chat to us. We would love to hear from you uh, about this episode or if you've got any ideas for future episodes or if you'd like to come on yourself, um, you go ahead and, and have a chat with us and, mm. yeah. Look forward to hearing from you. Great. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode and we'll be back with a new one soon. Yeah, see you then. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.